There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What wisdom stirs amongst you? Come, sir, now I am for you again. I pray you sit by us and tell the tale. Merry or sad shall be. As merry as you will. A sad tale's best for winter. I have one of sprites and goblins. Let's have that one, good sir. Come on and do your best to fright me with your sprites or your powerful attitude. There was a man. Now come sit down. Then on. Dwelt by a churchyard. And tell it softly. Yond crickets shall not hear it. Come on then. And give it me in my knee. Was he met there, my lord? Who's behind? Camillo with him? Behind the top of the pines, I met them. Never saw I men scour so on their way. I eyed them even to their ships. How blessed am I in my just sense here, in my true opinion. A lack for lesser knowledge. How cursed in being so blessed. There may be in the cup a spider steeped and one may drink depart and yet partake no venom for his knowledge is not infected but if one present the abhorred ingredient to his eye make known how he has drunk he cracks his gorge his sides with violent hefts I have drunk and seen the spider. But if one present the abhorred ingredient to his eye, make known how he hath drunk, he cracks his gorge, his sides with violent hefts. I have drunk and seen the spider. So says Leontes in Act Two of The Winter's Tale, Hello and welcome back to The Plays The Thing, your one-stop podcast for all things Shakespeare. I am Tim McIntosh, and I am joined again by Emily Maeda. Hello, Emily. How are you? Doing great. How are you doing, Tim? 
I'm good. Are you recovered from Christmas? Mostly, mostly. Mostly. Lots of music over Christmas, lots of food. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well. I am looking at all the work that is kind of accumulating for me after the Christmas break and I'm starting to get nervous, but, uh, but I can't, I can't, like I worked a little bit today and I just can't bear to make myself get fully back to work. I still want to be in holiday mode. It's an important thing. It's an important thing to take some time, isn't it? It is. But here we are, Emily, act two of The Winter's Tale. The beginning of The Winter's Tale kind of starts off, oh, it's so happy, friends visiting. And then, of course, it explodes. And it all explodes because Leontes has grown crazy jealous that his, he thinks his wife is having an affair with his friend, King Polixenes. Of course, she's not, but he has just gone crazy. And in the words that we just heard we hear these really interesting lines from Leontes. There may be in the cup a spider steeped, but one may drink, depart, and yet partake no venom for his knowledge is not infected. But if one present the abhorred ingredient to his eye, make known how he hath drunk, he cracks his gorge, his sides with violent hefts. And then he concludes, I have drunk and seen the spider. Make sense of this for us, Emily. What is what is Leontes saying? Well, it is so interesting because I think, um, well, first of all, it's interesting to say that you could drink, but if you don't see, you're fine, mm-hmm. right? Which is what mm-hmm. he puts forward at the beginning. But now he says, I have drunk and seen the spider. And it just continues his obsession with the fact that he sees and no one else sees. So he is speaking deeper into his paranoia, don't you think? Yeah. Paranoia has grown. And now he sees, he says a little bit later, all's true that is mistrusted right further down in that same speech. Yeah. So so once you have put yourself in that place, who can talk you out of it? Yeah. Right? Who can what, talk you what out defeaters? Of it? What defeaters to his argument could possibly be marshaled so that he's like, wow, you know what? That makes some sense. <laughs> he is refusing. So, I mean, it is a it is a bit uh, prophetic of what's going to, going to come later when we get the um, speech from the from Apollo, from the Oracle. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Because that's supposed to be definitive. So we want right. to know what happened. And he's there. even set it up to be definitive. Yeah. But OK. Let me do this. Let me just give an overview of the act, Emily, and then I want to come back and I want to ask you how this scene that we heard just kind of the end of this scene, how the scene with Mamilius that opens act two, how it sets up the rest of the act. But first, let me just give an overview of the act. So what has happened at the end of act one is Leontes has told his best man, Camillo, hey, you need to murder Polixenes. Polixenes is messing with my wife. You need to murder him. And Camillo, being the good man that he is, is like, you know, he tells Leontes what he wants to hear, but he's not going to kill Polixenes. He helps Polixenes escape. So now, early in Act 2, Leontes hears that both Polixenes and Camillo are gone. So how does he respond? Late in the first scene of Act 2 he has Hermione arrested Mm -hmm. for adultery and treason. He announces that he has sent couriers 
to the shrine of Apollo to obtain the God's advice about what action he's going to, he should take. So this should be when this happens, the moment the Oracle will come back and say, Hey, your wife is innocent. Polixenes is innocent. Like relax, dude, that should be the moment, but we already have a bad feeling that's not going to happen. Okay. So a little bit later in act two, Paulina comes on the scene. She attempts to visit Hermione in prison, but she learns that when she visits Hermione, the queen has given birth to a baby girl. So Paulina forms this kind of very clever strategy. She's going to take the baby to Leontes in the hopes that Leontes is going to see his daughter and say, oh, you're right. She looks like me. I can see you know, her nose is like mine. Her chin is like mine. I was so wrong. But this, of course, does not work. Paulina brings the baby. Leontes is tortured. And his response is that he orders the baby to be burned. But now we meet, and we can talk about this character in a little bit, this second other good man that's going to stand up to Leontes and that is Antigonus. So he orders, does Leontes, Antigonus to take the baby away to a deserted place. He's like, okay, you don't have to burn it, but just take it away to a deserted place and abandon it. That's kind of the plan at the end of act two. Okay. What I really want to concentrate on today is Paulina as a character, but I first, Emily, want to talk about this opening scene with Mamilius, mm -hmm. how does it set up the rest of this act for us? Well, I think to me, it um, harkens back to some of the things we talked about in act one. For instance, mm -hmm. Hermione is hugely pregnant, right? So mm -hmm. when the scene opens, she is speaking to Mamilius. She has her helping lady there. Um, Mamilius seems to be rambunctious and running around because she says, take the boy to you. He so troubles me. Tis past enduring. Mm. I have known that feeling. I have known. <laughs> I bet you have. <laughs> but we but we have the sense that um, they're in private chambers. Right. Don't you think? In yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. 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 And so then it's not it's not in the court. It's exactly. not exactly. Like, yeah. The court. So once again, we have a very, I would say, feminine setting. Wouldn't you protect yeah. yeah. during and Mamilius is telling her a story. And this is where we get, um, tell me a story. And he said, should it be merry or sad? And she says, Mary. And he says, he's going to tell her a sad tale because it's best for winter. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is mm -hmm. a little bit where we get the, the title of the play. Yeah. So you have this very intimate scene and then Leontes bursts into it with his rage. And as soon as yeah. he bursts into it, then he gives that whole speech with, I have drunk and seen the spider. And right after that, um, he tells Hermione that um, the boy will never see her again. And he says to her, give me the boy. I'm glad you did not nurse him, though he does bear some signs of me, yet you uh -huh. have much blood in him. Right. So, I mean, this is also going to be played on by Paulina, right, with when she brings the baby. She is going to point out to Leontes all the resemblances between Leontes right. and this baby. Right. But here he is looking, he's almost second guessing Mamilius's parentage. I know. Right. It even that starts even in act one. He's kind of looking at him sideways, yes. you know. Yes. And now it starts at like that 
that insane jealousy even affects his vision of his own son. Right. So where he thinks that he is seeing so clearly that clearly that his senses are so right on, they are betraying him. Yeah. Yeah. His own. So I, I think that that scene sets up the rest of it because we once again have the sense of Hermione's vulnerability, right? Here she is. Like she can't even hardly watch her own son because she's so tired. And yeah. then we have Leontes anger and jealousy bursting into this protected place. And she is not only going to be imprisoned, but she will not see her son again. Mm-hmm. So like what more could you put on this poor woman? Exactly. So I, I don't know. I think that that's a, I think that was um, wise by Shakespeare. Don't you to set it up? There. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah I do. And, and sort of the, um, the interior as opposed to the court, because we're going to spend more time in the court, you know, but yeah. the, not um, court like the judge, but court of the King um, yeah. where she will be tried also. So this is a private sort of, nurturing moment that begins the act. That's what I would say. What do you think? I, I just, well, as you know, my wife is seven months pregnant and watching Galen progress in her pregnancy. It occurs to me how many other people and other, how do I say this? Every day she needs like a little bit more from me. Yeah. It take, it's a little bit harder to get into bed. It's a little bit harder to get out of bed. It's a little bit harder to get up from the couch. You know what I mean? Yeah. And Galen is a very strong woman. She's in, she's, you know, she's in great shape. Yeah. She's in good health, but she's growing more vulnerable by the day. I know. You know, and I've never seen that. I, I mean, I'm sure I've seen this, but not ex such in such close proximity. Exactly. And it occurs to me how many things need to be in place for a woman to bear a child, basically yes. for the human race to continue. continue. So yes. many things have to yes. be in place. Yes. And now we see Paulina, who before the play begins was surrounded, we presume, by good care. Paulina is there. All of her waiting women are there. Even the men in the court that serve Leontes are there ostensibly to kind of protect her, guard her, et cetera, et cetera. And now Leontes through one, I know. one like trifle of insanity that he's allowing to grow, it's just expanding, expanding, expanding. And it's by the time that we meet Paulina, it's beginning the whole, it really feels to me like the whole kingdom is beginning to crack. Yeah. It's a domino effect. I mean, this is why, especially I think this act feels so tragic. This, this is yeah. the way of all tragedies, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, it is. Hermione says, um, line 98 of act two, scene one, how will this grieve you when you shall come to clearer knowledge that you thus have published me. And that's also mm. pathetic for later on, isn't it? That she is saying to him, look, you are going to deeply, deeply <laughs> regret and grieve what you are doing now because yeah. you published me to publish me as an adulteress, right? When this is so not true, but he is not stopping. He is just not stopping. He is not stopping. He is like, maybe every once in a while, he'll kind of slow down and think like, wait, is this the right thing to do? Yes, it is. Yes. I know it is. I know it is. Um, 
say you were about to say something no he just keeps saying you know all that back to i have drunk and seen the spider all's true that is mistrusted right he that all's true is mistrusted so how are you going to go um in so many of shakespeare's tragedies we see a king make a misstep i'm thinking um I'm thinking of Macbeth, mm-hmm. he kills the king. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of Hamlet's uncle killing Hamlet's father. Uh, I'm thinking of Iago kind of getting the best of Othello's mind in convincing him, Othello, that his wife Desdemona is mm-hmm. cheating on him. Uh-huh. And these little things, these little kind of fissures begin in the character of the king, mm-hmm. the leader. And they begin to... I know I'm going to mix metaphors here, ripple out throughout the court and then beyond the kingdom. And I think it's so interesting that um, in Macbeth and maybe Othello, I can't remember, but certainly in Hamlet, there's an enemy army kind of waiting in the wings, adding additional strain upon the empire or, or, or the kingdom. And for me, I think that Shakespeare has this kind of vision that um, what happens at home in in a great family, in a ruling family, can never remain at home. Mm-hmm. Like the goodness that can overflow from that noble family can flow over the entire kingdom as a blessing. And the harm, the ill will... Mm-hmm. that overflows from the noble family can flow out through the whole kingdom. Mm-hmm. I, and that's just an interesting little pattern that I see over and over in his plays. I, you know what I mean? I do. And I also that um, the natural world reflects. Yes. That, right. And even here it's set in winter, right? Yeah. That's when things are dead. Um, it's interesting to even think later, we can talk about this more in the later acts, but Um, The inversion here of winter and um, the story of um, Proserpina, do you know? Mm. It's interesting to think about that as well. Um, But I think you're right. The um, the entire there there is a unity among all things: the interior, exterior, the family, the kingdom, the natural world that's being represented here. I talk about this probably way too much on the podcast, but it's just worth mentioning again. In Shakespeare's theater, um, there was a kind of three-tiered universe that was built into the stage. So in the middle of the the, um, stage floor would be a door and the door would lead down to the cellarage and the kind of nickname for the cellarage was hell. Mm-hmm. It was hell, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then above the stage as a backdrop for the stage would have been a kind of a, a painted vision of the cosmos, but not just of the starry skies, mm-hmm. but the starry skies kind of like interwoven with something like um, a polis, you know, like an ordered yeah. city. Right. And so when Hamlet, you know, steps forward and he's talking to Rosencrantz, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and he says, um, 
talks about you know the wonders of nature and the wonders of humanity and all of these incredible things from but man delights not me no nor woman too there's a kind of contrast between what we see in the built reality the built furniture of the stage and the words that hamlet is speaking there's a real there's a juxtaposition there right and so I think sometimes we might hear Hamlet as sort of like a proto-existentialist or something right. like that, but his stage, Shakespeare's stage, right. is the word countermand appropriate yeah. here? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It countermands um, Hamlet's- Right. What he's speaking. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. And so I bring that up because when we hear Leontes- going crazy yeah it's not just that he is um directing his anger and his jealousy unfairly toward hermione her gentlewomen paulina etc etc but there's something like it's a it, it his jealousy is actually tinkering with the structure of the universe itself Completely. And that, and we're going to see that then in act three, when it switches to Bohemia and we switch to spring. Yes. Right. Right. Uh, and then it will finally come back, but right. The, um, the way he sets this up, the way Shakespeare, as you point out, not only with the theater, but also in choice of setting of winter, things are dead, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all that is sad. This is all sad. And then we are going to make kind of, a, it is dramatic. It's a dramatic switch in the middle of act three to Bohemia, to spring, to the natural world, to the pastoral, yeah. to the um, opposite of the court. Right. Yes. And yes. all of these things, they're all meant to work together to give meaning, right. To highlight. I think, I think that's a really important point about Shakespeare's theater and yeah. the built furniture in people's minds because people didn't have this. What happens over here is separate from what happens over here, which is how we all think, right? <laughs> we yeah. choose not to see less of the interwovenness. But I think this play is particular. We're going to get into a lot of plants that have meaning mm. and actually, mm -hmm. right. The natural world is is meant to give meaning to um, the world of the play, right? There's there's things that are being spoken about there that that resonate within the world of the people. Not they're not all separate. They're interwoven. They are um, outward representations sometimes of inward realities. Right. Right. I want to remind listeners that you and your husband, Mark, started a landscape design company. And so hopefully you can weigh in a little bit on the flora and fauna of the second half of this play, because that for me is, um, I'm really intrigued by it and feel woefully incapable of discussing it with any sort of intelligence. So I'm hoping you can weigh in. It was actually really fun to do a little bit of research because of course the names are different, right? So to look up yeah. how they're named, and I was like, oh, yes, I know what that is. Anyway, it is fun. And and uh, later on, we will see that those are all those all carry meaning with them. Yes. Right? right. They all carry meaning. And there's an interesting discussion about art and nature also that comes. Up yeah, there is. That, that would be a really good one to have either act three or act four, because this is like really ripe and fruitful territory for Shakespeare. Like, what is yes. the nature? What What is the. Um, 
difference between art and nature? What does art provide nature? What does nature provide art? It's really, really enjoyable um, to explore. And Shakespeare, in so many ways, is he's a medieval. Yes. More than he is absolutely like a Renaissance figure, even absolutely. though he is certainly a Renaissance figure, but in so many ways, his mind and the things that he inherited are very much medieval. There's correspondence between the natural world and the world of humanity, right? There's a yes. correspondence there. And between the world of the heavens, the celestial. Yes, right. Which is what right. his stage shows, which is how he thought. So yeah, I, I'm excited about that. You and I have talked before, and this is just a side note. We'll kind of come back to the play after this. About um, there was an American entrepreneur who I think in the 19th century he had fallen in love with Shakespeare's plays, and he decided that he wanted to bring over all of the types of birds that Shakespeare mentions in England. He wanted to bring them over to the United States. Did you? Do you remember this conversation? I remember this conversation, but this is very interesting. Keep going. So this, this guy brought him over. And um, of course, some of those oh. birds don't belong in the United States. They're invasive species. Did he bring and the I starling? Did he bring the What's, starling? It's the starling. Oh, it's my the starling. Gosh, that's right? notorious. That's notorious. And I don't know what it is. So I, I guess starlings just have no natural predators. Exactly. Yeah. And they've run amok in, in the United States. And are they prominent in Colorado? Um, yeah, we can get flocks of them even here. That is so interesting. He's the one that brought them over. I, if, I mean, I need to check my facts, but I'm pretty confident that is the backstory. That's amazing. You're like, oh, what a wonderful thing that turned terribly wrong. Oh. Starlings invading the United States. People have done this with plants as well. You bring them yeah. over, right? Yeah, right, right. I mean, the one, because I'm from the South, that I'm yeah. so familiar with is kudzu. Kudzu, Terrible. an invasive Japanese Terrible. vine. Oh Terrible. my gosh. We, I used to live on this farm <laughs> and kudzu had taken over like maybe a half acre of this pine forest that was growing on the farm. Terrible. And so the owner of the farm and I, with another friend of mine, went out and we spent a day with machetes hacking away <laughs> at the root systems of this of this kudzu and we finished and it was a brutal hard day's work and then i noticed three days later you know the vines are starting to brown a month later they're all brown and then three months later i was like wait they're going they're green again and they weren't green but kudzu had grown from the roots so quickly that a year later we had to do the whole thing over again and this time we made it different we burned out the roots. That was the only way to keep this terrible <laughs> disease crop from taking over again. If only oh, I had known, I think he would have used that as an outward representation of some inner reality. It, totally, totally. <laughs> absolutely. He would have. Let's, I want to play um, kind of the introduction. It's not the introduction of Paulina, but it's, it's for me, her pivotal scene in this act. So Emily, help me describe what Paulina's relationship with um, Hermione is. She is the wife of Antigonus, another um, man who serves the king. Yes. But in her relationship with with Hermione is what? Uh, we don't, we're not exactly told, are we? Except that she's a waiting woman. Yeah. She's a yeah. And it father. seems like she's, their, their relationship. Older. older. 
Yes, right. We're right. She's older than a lot of the other waiting women. Yeah. So she arrives um, into the play and she goes to visit Hermione. Hermione's in prison and soon she discovers that Hermione has given birth to a child in prison. So that is the scene. That's the setup for the scene that we're about to hear. You're going to hear Paulina speaking to Leontes at the beginning. And then a little bit later, you're going to hear Antigonus, husband to Paulina. Let's listen. Not so hot, good sir. I come to bring him sleep. To such as you, that creep like shadows by him, and who sigh at each his needless heavings, such as you, nourish the cause of his awaking. I do come with words medicinal as true, honest as either, to purge him from that humour that presses him from sleep. What noise that? Huh? No noise, my lord, but needful conference. About some gossips for your highness. Away with that audacious lady! Antigonus, I charged thee that she should not come about me. I knew she would. I told her so, my lord, on your displeasure's peril and on mine, she should not visit you. What? Canst not rule her? From all dishonesty he can. In this, he shall not rule me. I mean, are you here? When she will take the rein, I let her run. But she'll not stumble. Good, my liege, I come and I beseech you, hear me. It professes myself, your loyal servant, your physician, and your most obedient counsellor. I say I come from your good queen. Good queen? Good queen, my lord. Good queen. I say good queen. And would by combat make her good. Were I a man, the worst about you. Force her hence. Let him that makes but trifles of his eyes first hand me. On mine own accord, I'll off. But first, I'll do my errand. The good queen, for she is good, hath brought you forth a daughter. Here it is. Commends it to your blessing. Mankind witch hints with her out a door. That was Leontes trying to get somebody to take Paulina <laughs> out away from the court. Um, I want to ask you a question in just a second. Emily, I, I want to ask you, why does no one take Paulina away? But I first, there's, there are lines when Paulina um tries to get Leontes to see his child. And they're so beautiful. Mm -hmm. The lines, behold, my lords, mm -hmm. although the print be little, the whole matter and copy of the father, yes. eye, nose, lip, the trick of his frown, his forehead, nay, the valley, mm -hmm. the pretty dimples of his chin and cheek, his smiles, the very mold and frame of hand, nail, finger and thou good goddess nature which hast made it so like to him that got it if thou hast the ordering of the mind too 
mm. amongst all colors, no yellow in it, lest she suspect as he does her children's, not her husband's. Mm-hmm. And Leontes' response, a gross hag. I mean, he just, you know, he can't see it. He can't see it. Okay. That just little um, description of the baby looking like the father mm-hmm. is just so, it's, it's so tender and beautiful and Le- poor Leontes cannot see it. Cannot see okay. Every, Leontes commands all of his men over and over in this scene, get her out of here. Emily, why don't the men act? Why don't they take Paulina away? Well, there's maybe a couple reasons. Paulina blames all of them for being weak and <laughs> because they won't speak truth to the king. Mm-hmm. Because earlier, um, well, we get it first with Camillo, who says when Leontes first brings to him this jealousy, who says, uh, Camillo thinks the king is sort of entrapping him at first. He says, of course not, Hermione. Like, no right. one could do this. Right. And then um, in the first scene, when Antig- Antigonus first appears, he says, for every inch of woman in the world, I every dram of woman's flesh is false if she be. So mm. all of these counselors, they don't know what to do with the king, but they are pretty convinced that Hermione is not guilty. Right. Right. So when Paulina comes in with so much strength, I think that there's a part of them might might there be a part of them that um, is is happy for her forthrightness. Right. <laughs> finally, happy. somebody's but saying finally it. Finally, somebody's saying it. And she says it with such get your hands off of me. Do not. Yeah. Like I am speaking truth. You guys should be doing this. But because yeah. you're not going to do it. I'm going to do it. And they say, oh, no, he hasn't slept. So I think this is also speaks to the staging that um, the Royal Shakespeare Company did with Anthony mm. Cher, where he's mm. coming unhinged because at the beginning of this scene, Leontes is talking about the fact that he can't sleep, right? That he is just out of sleep, nor night, nor day, no rest. It is but weakness to bear the matter thus, mere weakness. Mm. So um, the counselors are saying, don't go in. He's like kind of unhinged. And that's what Anthony does so well. He shows that, you know, he's losing grasp on reality. And she says, ah, but I am here. I am a physician who has come to bring you sleep. Right. Because you can't sleep because you are wrong. So um, I think for those reasons, they don't put their hands on her. They know, I think all of them know that Hermione is not guilty and paulina is speaking with such assurance right Mm, she does it to mm. the jailer as well to get to get in to see hermione we didn't talk about that but she does that with the jailer as well she says i will stand here i will stand between the king and you but you will let me take this baby i am taking yeah yeah okay i got a question for you yeah emily i think that this play is very very instructive to about personal behavior in this regards. Um, All of us have been in a situation where somebody has like power. Yes. I'm thinking especially about like in a work situation or maybe even like, you know, a parent or something like this. And we know that the person in power is wrong. Yes. You know, Leontes is wrong. Everybody knows it. And Paulina 
is the way that we all want to be, <laughs> right? We all want to be just like a straight spine. And she walks up to the king and she spits it out. She says exactly the way that it is. Okay. I want you to, but, but I also want to like recognize the reality of the situation is that Camillo did not do that. Yeah. Right. And I don't, and I think that Camillo was equally right in his kind of strategy mm-hmm. as Paulina was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me, it's a lot easier to identify with Camillo's mm-hmm. move. Yep. So, so what do you, if Shakespeare is giving us um, advice on how to act when the most powerful person in the room is not just wrong, but is like, a little bit crazy, Leonti's case, really crazy. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think Shakespeare is um, advising us? Well, I don't know. Is he advising us or is he highlighting? I mean, because I think part of how Paulina can do what she does is it is very unexpected. Mm. She is. Un- no one expects her to stride in there Nobody, and just be like, yeah, this is this is not what waiting women did. Right. All are telling her. So there's something I also this there's something in the element of surprise that she Mm. forward with this strength and with this courage that I think throws everybody off. Yeah. But if we're thinking about what you said, I agree. It's we all find ourselves in these situations. It, it, you know, it doesn't even have to be somebody who's super wrong, just Mm. with people in authority and people in leadership. Don't you think? Yeah. Um. You see, one sees maybe not even a fatal flaw, but somebody should say something. And it's very hard to know how to say it. Yeah. What is Shakespeare saying to us? I don't know. I think he's saying power always needs to be checked. And I think he thinks that in all of his plays. Oh, no doubt about it. There must no be doubt about it. Power. And um, she is going to use, this is going to come up in act three. Um, he is she's going to use tyranny. She's going to call it out as tyranny. And he's going to say, Leontes is going to say, no, I'm not being tyrannous. I'm being just. Yeah. Right. 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 Still trying to act like he is. But I think Shakespeare is very interested in power being checked. Don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Don't you I absolutely do. Part of the reason I do. that she can do it is that it is really unexpected. Nobody expects it. Right. I mean, Camillo, if Camillo had done it, he would have lost his head. And here she is she mm-hmm. comes in and she tells her husband, don't touch me. I'm going to. Yeah. And she says to him to uh, Leontes is throwing every insult at her. He calls her heartlet, mm-hmm. which is a reference to Chanticleer. Like she's a scold. She's not in, being controlled by her husband. She's out of all um, bearing and, you know. People still have those feelings about women who are able to articulate. Yeah, don't you think? Oh yeah, oh <laughs> yeah. To power. It's yeah. Not a new, this is. I don't know as much as things have changed. I I don't know that that has changed so much. I uh, I'm trying to think about things that I can say on the air. I shouldn't say on the air. <laughs> um, I have noticed. Um, oh man. Yeah, I'll just, I'll say it this way. I 
work with um, women at my, in my business who are my um, superior on the, in the kind of um, organizational depth chart. Mm-hmm. And I will watch sometimes our clients treat them in a certain way. And then me, who's lower in the pyramid, <laughs> I will be able to say things and they'll say, oh, gosh, Tim, that's so interesting. Where just a second ago, the kind of um, condescension with which they treat a woman who's more experienced than me, yes. who's smarter than me, yes. who has more authority than me. And it kind of, it irritates me. It really <laughs> irritates me. Um, yeah, we had it just the other day and I don't want it to remain that way forever. But it is disheartening to see that the same thing that's happening in Shakespeare's play is still happening today. It is. These are these are the things of between men and women, are they not? I was going to read you the lines um, where Paulina calls him a tyrant, can I? Please. I care not. Um, he says that she, he'll have her burned. Leontine, mm-hmm. she says, I care not. It is an heretic that makes the fire. What a great comeback. Yeah. Not she which burns in it. I'll not call you tyrant, but this most cruel usage of your queen, not able to produce more accusation than your own weak hinged fancy. Something mm. savors of tyranny and will ignoble make you. Yay. Scandalous to the world. Mm. Oh, those are good words. They're so good. They're good words. And she doesn't stop shining. No, she doesn't. She doesn't stop shining throughout the whole play. I, she doesn't. And I um, I do love this in the last act. I love their relationship in the last act. Yes. Oh, man. This is. Yeah, that's something so that. Very that, interest. Um, beautiful that Shakespeare. Yeah. Absolutely. Listeners who um, have not seen the play, that's something to look forward to in the last act. What happens between. Paulina and Leontes. I just want to go back to the question that I asked you kind of about like, okay, if, if we're going to get some instruction from Shakespeare on this, like how do we act? We all want to be Paulina. Um, but I also, if you're right, if Camillo had brazenly disobeyed and said, nope, then Camillo would have lost his head. It would have been over. And he knows that. Mm-hmm. And so he does act. He's as was it um, cunning as a serpent? Mm-hmm. Yeah, as innocent as a dove, and as yeah. cunning as a serpent. Yeah. But in both both cases, both Paulina and Camillo, their best friend is the truth. Exactly. They never let go of the truth. Now, how they engage with the king, they have some tactical differences there, but they never let go of the truth. Mm-hmm. And anybody who lets go of the truth in this play gets submerged in Leontes is crazy yep. immediately that ha- we see it happen in Macbeth, you know, yep. people keep their mouth shut and they become part of this terrible. They become just this, complicit through their silence. They become complicit and they lose themselves. Yeah. And so the, the, the people in this play, they might differ in how they oppose Leontes I'm thinking of Paulina, I'm thinking of Camillo, and I'm thinking of Antigonus. Yep. They they oppose him in different ways, but they never lose track of the truth and they hold tightly to it. I just want to mention one of the characters who's not in this play who um, should be commended for the way that he handles um, a crazy tyrant is, I should mention two, 
Kent. Oh, I was going to guess Kent. Yeah. Should have let me and, guess. But there's one other from, there's one other from uh, King Lear. Can you think of the other character from King Lear? Well, I mean, are you thinking of Gloucester? No. No. Wait, wait, let me think. We just did. Yeah. We just did King Lear. Kent. Oh, you got this. This is easy. Oh, well, Cordelia. Well, yeah, but Cordelia is kind of thrown out before she, I mean, she, oh. she protests. Edgar. No, come on. That's come on. Like, who are you thinking of? Wait, wait, wait. Don't. I'll be so annoyed if you say. <laughs> you of, will be annoyed. His, one of his um, advisors. Oh, yeah. Who else could there be? There's Kent. Oh, the fool. The fool. The fool. Of course. The fool is the fool. so good. The seat. Now, it's interesting. Let's think about the fool in relationship to Paulina because they both share kind of outsider status. Because she's a waiting woman is not part of like exactly. the male court. Yep. Okay. And, yep. and the fool also shares that outsider status, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting that yeah. Shakespeare in some ways uses the outsider to um, illuminate the truth? Yeah. Don't you think? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Right. And the fool never gives in to Lear's crazy. Never gives in. Yep. And tells it to him. Straight. But he just tells it to him in this very funny way. It's straight, oh. but it's very funny. Well, I was going to say straight, but tells it to him slant. Who says yeah, that? Yeah, right. Who says right. that? Yeah. Um, I've got one more question for you. Okay. By this point in the play, by this point in all of Shakespeare's plays, a kind of sub-theme emerges. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we're beginning to see the kind of sub-theme of this play. So this is one of the things that I think Shakespeare is so masterly at. In Richard II, there is this kind of sub-theme running throughout the play. And the sub-thing is, um, what do you do in a culture where God's anointed one, this is a time of like the divine right of Kings Mm -hmm. is doing wrong. Mm -hmm. How do you resolve that dilemma? Mm -hmm. And it shows up over and over and over in Richard the second. And we can think of other examples from other plays Mm -hmm. in this play. For me, I think our kind of theme that's running like a little current underneath the main plot points and character conflicts is seeing. I completely agree. Right? I completely agree. Yes. Over and over, Leontes is kind of claiming that he sees everything. He even like there's there's a line. He says to uh, Antigonus, he even smells better than everybody else. So he says to Antigonus, yes, cease no more. You smell this business with a sense as cold as a dead man's nose, but I do see it and feel it as you feeling doing thus and see with all the instruments that I feel. He's like, (laughs) you have have all the smell of a dead man's nose, but me, I really smell it true. I completely agree. I mean, I think that I was going to bring that up as well. So I'm glad you did it. That. All of his senses, the, the ways in which you can know the world through your sentences, he 
no longer does, but he thinks he does. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, that I really thought that was interesting too, in the place where he talks about smelling now, not only mm-hmm. does he see, but he also smells, right? Like you can smell the, the rot or something. Yeah. yeah but all of his senses have um, turned on him because of the craziness of his mind. Yeah. I mean, you know what it's like. I would imagine you would know what it's like to talk to people who are into conspiracy theories. Oh my gosh. How, how do you talk them out? Because they always, you can't, you can't. And that's the same thing here, right? This, this thing that should be trusted. Yeah. Everything that you see as the truth, like Paulina bringing the baby who seems to be a clear representation of her father means nothing. It means nothing because his mind has been darkened. Yeah. Right. His season has been darkened. I think that's another theme in Shakespeare's place, how reason becomes darkened. And I mean, it's a little bit like Milton Satan, who reasons very well from a false yeah. premise, right? Yeah. And that's right. what that's what Leontes thinks he's doing. He thinks he's reasoning very well, but it's from a faulty premise. Macbeth right. does that. Oh, yeah. Right. And oh, even, yeah. I mean, Iago does that with with Othello in the most tragic. Of and days. Lear, Lear and does Lear. the same thing. He is just convinced that Cordelia has wronged him in the worst possible way. And it's very logical from his starting point, but yeah. the starting point is wrong. Yeah. So that's also a real interesting theme that he keeps coming back to Shakespeare. You know, there's something I'm going to make a real tortured um, comparison here, but it seems to me like there's a kind of Artificial intelligence is based on like certain kind of like fundamental kind of precepts underlying the program that in the program operates from those precepts. And, and even though we're getting better and better at artificial intelligence, there's a, there's a pliability that is not available right now in artificial intelligence that human beings do have. Yes. But it's, I think it's interesting that Leontes in so many ways resembles a kind of artificial intelligence in that he cannot pull himself away from his precept conviction. Hermione is cheating on me. Polixes is cheating on, you know, is with her in it. He can't pull himself away from that. And so the program runs perfectly logically from that that. foundation, right? Completely. I feel like, um, I think I, I don't know if I mentioned this book the last time, but it's been definitely a book of my year, The Tragic Imagination by mm. Rowan Williams. Mm. And in it, that is really one of his themes. He says that tragedy and also comedy, actually anything within the dramatic sphere, because occurring yeah. in time, it's a communal act. Um, it's always aimed. We can see these people and their tragic misrecognition, which Williams calls it. And it can be a lesson to us, right? Where we can see it played out. What happens when somebody tragically misrecognizes the world and it can speak to us. And so one of these things is if you go so far in your own mind that you have no person that can speak into your presuppositions, you are in a very bad place. Yeah. Right. And I mean, that is what this this play highlights, I mean, jealousy, it is so rampant within. Mm-hmm. And when I think of my own times of feeling something like this, I completely relate to Leontes. Mm-hmm. 
you're my world. I mean, and thankfully it hasn't happened too much and I've got right, myself right. out of it. But when you're there, everything has a twist to it, right? Right. And if you right. will not listen to those around you, if you will not listen to, oh, maybe I'm wrong, mm-hmm. then you will go in very bad ways. So I, I do. I'm so grateful for Shakespeare's insight into these things, for the ability to see this and to, um, you know, think back on my own space or where 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 I could be missing things. Right. Because we all do tragically misrecognize right. what's going on around us. In that Life of Shakespeare podcast that I did a few weeks ago, I said the things that really stood out to me about Shakespeare, like the things that he's truly, truly exemplary at, like in a, in a class by himself. For me, there's two things. Um, one of them is the language. It's just so Beautiful. gorgeous. Even talking about drinking a spider. I know. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous <laughs> language, right? Um, and the other one is human psychology. I know it. He, boy, he can shine a light. I know he it. takes his plots, almost all of his plots, maybe with, we talked about this a little bit, except for Midsummer Night's Dream, maybe a couple of others. He just takes plots from yeah. elsewhere. Um, he shapes them according to his own designs, of course, but all the plots kind of pre-existed. There's an right. Ur Hamlet, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But it's his insight into the way that we are that is spectacular he's a psychologist of of yeah the most profound capacity yeah and william's point about tragedy and comedy but you know the dramatic field happening in time and as a communal event i think is so um insightful because Mm. when even when i was watching this which is you know still a degree of removal even when i'm watching it on youtube and you see leontes going through this it is nearly unbearable isn't it oh yeah it is it's nearly unbearable um and lewis talks about that in um um an experiment in criticism that, you know, tragedy makes like <laughs> the mundaneness of suffering sort of um, noble or something worth watching. But you do feel that even here, like the Leontes jealousy, not something that we want to think about within ourselves. Yeah. Put on such horrible display that you can't get away from it. You have to face it. You have to face this destructive right. power and you're facing it in your own body, right? Don't you feel it in your oh, heart? Oh, you for sure. Him? For and sure. Heartbeats. Like, what is going on? So I, I don't know. That's an, I think it's an insightful, it's something that you're talking about a lot, the embodiment of these things, right? You don't just, mm-hmm. them. it's also the seeing of them, the, the um, bringing to life and feeling it within ourselves that is so powerful about these. Yeah. Things. Yeah. Right? That really bring the psychology to the forefront. I am, I just finished Cormac McCarthy's latest book. Oh my God. Stella Maris. Did you Maris, like it? Maris. What's that? Did you like it? Emily, I don't know. I mean, it was as <laughs> the, the craft of it, I thought was good. I expected nothing less. He's yeah. one of the craftsmen. And listeners should know Cormac McCarthy, I think is, among the novelists that I have read, I think he is the one that I am most confident will be reading in a hundred years. In fact, I feel very confident that we'll be reading some of his books in a hundred years. Surprisingly, I agree with you. 
surprisingly. Why is that surprising? Well, I mean, because I've had a tortured relationship with Cormac McCarthy, but I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. He's tough. He's, He's not for the faint of heart, but he is supremely gifted at his craft. I mean, just incredibly so. Um, Stella Morris is the story of a young woman. I will not give much away because I know we have Cormac McCarthy readers out there who is having a conversation. She's very young and she is brilliant. She's a brilliant mathematician and she's having a conversation with her um, counselor. And I keep thinking as I'm reading the book, this woman has no relationship with like the physical world. Oh gosh, yes. What a good impression. And it's going very, very, very badly for her. And I won't say what the end of the book suggests, but I have a little theory about the end of the book. Anyway, anyway, all I bring all this up because I, I think that this character, the main character in this book, Stella, mm-hmm. um, the main character in the book is so in her cranium mm-hmm. and cannot get out of it. And I think that we see that with Shakespeare's, I and mean, I think we see it with all sorts of leaders when they when they lose their way, they can justify their own action and they yeah. can perceive the world the way that they want it because they are so inside their own skull and they've kind of like, they're losing touch with everything that happens below the neck. Yes. Yeah. Um, Paulina references lunacy a couple times, doesn't she? There's actually quite a few references to being under like the effects of, you know, of the moon, mm. which is what lunacy comes from. But like, yeah. The mind, the mind has been messed up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Emily, let's look forward to act three. Uh, I will tell you what we should expect. I'll just mention a couple of things that we should expect. Um, And then maybe you could give us one more thing to expect. We should expect to hear from the Oracle. Oracle. Right. Anything else we should expect looking forward to act three? Well, we get Hermione's amazing speeches. Yep. Are yep. So, so good. They're so good. And I mean, I think one of the things to look forward to, kind of like you were talking about with Camillo and Paulina, but it's also interesting to compare Paulina and Hermione. Mm. Their strength, they're both very strong, but they're strong in different ways, I think. Yeah. Yeah. What? That would be fun to, to pay attention to next act. We also switch locations mid, mid act. Uh-huh. Right. We sure do. Yeah. Um, yeah. The question of what Antigonus is going to do with this baby mm-hmm. is going to set up the next part of this act. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's carrying Leontes and Hermione's daughter away mm-hmm. to place it in a deserted spot where that deserted spot is and what happens to the baby is, um, what we need to look forward to in the second half of the play. We, you know, it's such a familiar trope in classic literature, is it not? The abandoned baby. Yeah. Taken outside the city, taken away. Yeah. Taken. <laughs> and what will be Moses. Moses. Um, who else? Who else? Paris. Um, what's that? Paris. Paris from the Iliad? Mm-hmm. Right. He's removed. Oh, I didn't, I don't remember yeah, this. He's removed. He's a shepherd when the, the goddesses come to him. Oh, wow. Um, Romulus and Remus. I was going to say Romulus and Remus. Yeah. Um, who else? 
So many. Um, yeah. um, how about Oedipus, right? Oedipus is removed from the, his city. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Familiar trope. How about um, Aragorn in Lord of the Rings? That's right. We could just, yeah. We could just keep going. We could just keep going. We could keep going. <laughs> in this case, it's a little girl, which is also an interesting inversion, isn't it? That it's not a, that it's, it's not, not like an heir. It's an heir to the throne, but it's not throne. a male. It's not yeah. a male. So yeah, it's really interesting. It's really interesting. Okay, Emily, um, let's do this again next week, act three, and we'll see our play pivot. Uh, for those of you who have been listening, you can always get in touch with us through our sister podcast's Facebook page. So our sister podcast is Close Reads. If you want to read along with classic and contemporary novels, um, find us online, the Close Reads Podcast. And through the Close Reads Podcast, we have a Facebook page that you can interact with us, throw questions at us, observations that um, you think we've neglected. We would love to hear from you. So that's the easiest way to find us. Until then, my name is Tim McIntosh. And for Emily Maeta, thanks so much for joining us and happy reading. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.